Welcome to episode 505 of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. Uh, Just Adam today for this episode. I'm really excited because I got a chance to sit down uh, via Zoom, like everything else, with P. Jelly Clark, the award-winning author of Ring Shout, which is a novella that came out a few months ago that we previewed back in October that's been just everywhere. Um, it This conversation is really interesting about we get into his research and his day job, you know, teaching and and where the origins of Ring Shout came to uh, came to be, and uh, looking at um, problematic content that you would see in popular you know books and movies and things, and how to approach those types of things. It's a really good conversation. Uh, we kind of get into it right away. Um, but we don't really talk like about the, the plot of Ring Shout. So just in case you're unaware, um, Ring Shout is all about a book. It's set in the 1920s, I believe. And it supposes that D.W. Griffith, who created Birth of a Nation, uh, a very famous, very problematic movie, uh, was actually a sorcerer. And anybody who watches it um, basically turns them into Ku Kluxes, which are monsters. Um, so he takes a lot of historical um, writing from former slaves who looked at the Ku Klux Klan and considered them monsters. And it's, it's, it's very interesting, but it's, it's, the book itself is uh, basically a ragtag group of uh, demon fighters in the South. And it's really great. And it's, there's monsters upon monsters and um, there's world jumping and all sorts of wonderful things. So just wanted to kind of put that part in there because I said, we kind of, I didn't want to say that we brushed past that. We just sort of got into a different type of a conversation. So I wanted to make sure you were actually aware of what Ring Shout was in case you didn't hear us preview it back in October or have happened to uh, not see it elsewhere. Uh, P.J. Clark has been writing uh, for a while now, and he has several novellas, um, Ring Shout. Uh, he has a couple of novelettes, um, A Dead Gin in Cairo, The Black God's Drums, uh, The Haunting of Tramcar 015 is really, really great as well. He's just a very powerful writer and um, love his stories. And we even talk about the difference between novellas and novelettes and novels and short stories. It's really interesting. I, I really think you guys will like this conversation. I um, wanted to remind everybody, if you didn't get a chance to listen to last Thursday's episode, that's where we unveiled our 2021 reading challenge. Uh, you can go to professionalbooknerds.com and download uh, the form to see all the different tasks that we have for our 2021 reading challenge. We'll, of course, spend some time next year going through each of those tasks with book recommendations and things of that nature. Um, You can also just listen to the last episode and kind of get more information there. Um, If you are doing the 2020 challenge, you still have, obviously, a couple weeks before the end of the year. Just shoot us an email at professionalbooknerds.overdrive.com with your... um, with your form, or as someone pointed out on Twitter, uh, just tag us on Twitter and Instagram. We'll we'll see them there as well. So wanna thank everybody for participating. I know everyone gets really excited about different reading challenges, and I'm glad that people like ours. So thank you. Um, also, hey, if it's the holidays, if you want to do something nice for us, if you want to give us a quick five star rating uh, in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, we would very much appreciate it. It helps us, you know, get more listeners, more sponsors, all that good fun stuff. Um, also, if you want some fun things for your family uh, for the holidays, you can go to shop.overdrive.com and you can ship them uh, a Libby hoodie or a Professional Book Nerds t-shirt, um, some really cool stuff. We have masks and tote bags, all sorts of stuff there at shop.overdrive.com. Okay, that's enough commercials for me. Uh, I'm going to let you guys get to this conversation with P. Jolly Clark on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. As I took a a class when I was in college which I'm sure many people have like a what I thought was going to be a throwaway like intro to, fi- to film you know film yeah. critique class when I was a a senior I was a baseball player and I was just looking for like a class to fill time that I could just like <laughs> not right. worry about and the first film we watched was Birth of a Nation Birth of a Nation yeah the just three plus hour situation and like this is Oh, it's so long. This is, you taught it though, right? Like this is the thing you've actually taught. Yeah, I've actually I've had to teach it. I teach a class called Slavery and Film, and that's where we start. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, uh, <laughs> we start there. So we don't watch all because it's so much to watch. It's on YouTube, so we watch part of it in class. 
they watch part at home and then we talk then we then we debrief (laughs) (laughs) talk about it we just give a lot of background i give a lot of history on it i talk about the protests that were protests at the time and Mm -hmm. critiques and uh dw griffith getting his feelings hurt because he was certain that like his, he has a black house story about his, he has a black housekeeper and he's like, you don't think the film is racist, do you? It's like, yes, yes, it is. Overtly so. He's like, what? And it, it was, it really was shown at the White House, though, wasn't it? Like, yes, it was. Uh, Woodrow Wilson, in fact, president of the time, he's actually quoted in the movie. Mm-hmm. He's in one of the stills. And so it's shown at the White House. What Woodrow Wilson said about it is still disputed. Some say that he thought he supposedly said it was like uh, it was like writing history and lightning. But it's disputed whether, you know, it's hard to tell. Did he actually say that or is that something yeah. that got passed down? Um, but we do know it was shown at the White House. It was shown to members of the Supreme Court. It was shown to members of Congress. Uh, it was this was an era of um, of lost cause nostalgia in a relationship. Mm-hmm. It was shown to, it was, you know, one of the things that it does, of course, is that it rebirths the Ku Klux Klan, which had only been a small Southern phenomenon. Now yeah. it's in New England and it's Seattle because of the movie. So. Yeah, the um, so the class that that I took was it wasn't meant to like we the the professor wasn't doing any commentary on kind of like what, what you're talking about, like, you know, slavery and cinnamon or anything like that. The reason we watched it was because to his point, his point was that it has a historical relevance in the sense that it was like one of the first kind of like blockbuster things. And the fact that like, how did he justify it? It, The guy was great, but he said something along the lines. He's like, despite its overt racism, the, which is never a great way to start a sentence ever, but he was like, despite its overt racism, there was a lot of um, theatrical like shots and things that. And all kinds of things. It's still in the AFI 100. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's this the way I look at it is that anyone who's taken anyone who's done film classes will tell you, yeah, I've seen it. It's still there. But the question is, like, I don't think you can show the film. Like I said, we debrief. Yeah. <laughs> film and just say, well, despite it's over racism, you, you have to you have to get into it. You can't escape that. And I think that part of the problem is people want to escape that to talk about the techniques and so I mean you, you could start an entire discussion there on the the seminal event uh the origin event for modern filmmaking is based in this movie so mm-hmm. what does that say about race and film yeah <laughs> and all the issues that come with I mean you could start an entire conversation and mm-hmm. I just think a lot of people they they want to talk about the camera angles and things but they don't want to talk about what students are students are watching the camera angles they're like yeah. Hey, the clan or the heroes of this film. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like that's a thing. Like we we would watch it, and I was like, I am not the next like Kubrick. I don't care about yeah. the like. Oh, it was so engine like the ingenuity he used to like make a breakaway table to like get this <laughs> shot. All I could think of, I was like, those are white guys in blackface that are like the whole thing yeah, like everything like the Ku Klux Klan they're the heroes in this like how does how did you I mean I guess how long were you teaching this before Ring Shout kind of came oh. about in your mind oh yeah that's a good question I think for a while I developed the class while I was in grad school mm-hmm. um partly because uh, I was I was taking uh, I was T I was a TA teach assistant to some other professors and they would sometimes show film and I noticed you get the notices the TA because you're with the students mm-hmm. <laughs> the students who might it was an evening class too and if they were normally like sometimes some of them were just spaced out or they mm-hmm. just tired at the end of the day um but when we had the film on they were like really alert and when it came to discussion they all had a thought and it just reminded me that it reminded me of something that dw griffith himself said and that was that he thought films are going to replace uh history books mm-hmm. why he made this he made it to be quote unquote historical, right? Even though it's, it's, it's not, but he made it to be so because he said one day there are gonna be no more libraries of books. You'll go in and it'll just be, he thought it'll just be films mm-hmm. because this is the way that people want to engage. And the one thing I couldn't argue was that people do engage with the films differently than they engaged with the different medium of the text, right? The medium changed. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the medium changed even though the info was the same, but they engaged with the film and so I started teaching a course just called Slavery on Film. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I did, when I was sketching it out, I was like, well, looks like I'll have to do Birth of a Nation because I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do Gone with the Wind, which is like the lukewarm version of Birth of a Nation. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, like uh, Margaret Mitchell, who wrote uh, Gone with the Wind, she actually mm-hmm. grew up watching Birth of a Nation. And so yeah. it, it's I mean, it's so it's such just a lukewarm version in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I'm going to show that a Shirley Temple films. Mm-hmm. and all these things like the littlest kernel and i have to talk yeah. about cause i can't skip birth of mm-hmm. a nation it's it's yeah. there right and so i think i was showing that for i was i was doing that for several years i think i started the idea for ring shout started germinating i want to say like in 2014 or so and mm-hmm. i had been already teaching it for at least i would say uh i guess about three four years yeah and then one day it just hit. <laughs> I, I have to imagine it probably felt a little bit cathartic to get to write this, <laughs> like, like take this movie that yeah. for, again, it is a piece of history. And, you know, it's not, you know, I even like people aren't going to be able to see me rolling my eyes as I said that. But right. um, I have to imagine there was some catharsis in being like, okay, here is the way that this man, you know, showed all this and just kind of like turning it on its head. Like I have to imagine that felt a little bit nice. It did. And there was a way that one of the things that there's several things. One, the idea of the clan as monsters. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was great to get that out there because that actually came from uh, ex-slave narratives who had lived and survived that first clan during Mm -hmm. reconstruction. And it was my reading of their narratives. They start talking about, these clan members don't dress like the way we think of them. Uh, they sometimes wear flower sacks or they blacken their faces mm-hmm. with their horns or chains and these different implements. And they started calling them haints, you know, uh, like ghosts or monsters. Mm-hmm. And it just clicked in there like, oh, the clan is monsters. That's, <laughs> that's great, right? Like this idea that like that they basically named these people who terrorized them their daily lives, right? Who were trying to reinforce slavery in a sense upon yeah. them. You know, they literally called them monsters and, mm-hmm. uh, and thought of them this way. And I said, there's so much, there's so many layers of metaphors there for me to play with. Um, so thinking of D.W. Griffith's movie was perfect. And just the whole idea of that, we, we, we talk about a lot of theory in that film class. Yeah. But the whole idea of how communication, you know, the questions about propaganda and communication and, how much impact does it have? And students love that. Like I, I have to like make them leave the class <laughs> where we start talking about how much does media impact you? Everyone has an opinion uh, and they argue and they talk. And so writing this was like a great way to get all of that out and to pull on some of those questions mm-hmm. on how does media impact us in the real world? I just, you know, I did it with magic and monsters. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. And we're at the, I'm gonna, I don't want to take too much of a tangent, but it's so funny you said that because I had a, um, I don't remember if it was interpersonal communication. It was a communications course I was taking and we were discussing that, but we weren't discussing it from a media standpoint. We were discussing it from, we had, we looked at all the, like the Super Bowl ads from that year. Yeah. And our professor was like, which one of these would, uh, which one of these would entice you to purchase the product Mm -hmm. and all of the commercials, all of us were like, none of them at all. But if you were to ask like, you know, which of these songs influences the way that you speak or like, which of these movies influences the way that you want to act or dress or um, just even like in that movie, thank you for smoking. We're like, they're talking about putting cigarettes on, on screen because it'll make young kids want to smoke. Like it looks cool. Right? Yeah, exactly. So old, when you watch those old black and white, like I watched the old black and white Twilight Zone with Rod Serling. Yeah. You just watch them like on the Dick Cavett show. They look cool. They like even the way they hold the cigarette. You can yeah. See how everyone wants to do that. Yeah. That's the thing. Like I, I don't smoke. I never have. And like I would never want to. But even now like, I'll see like a picture of Tom Waits or someone like holding a cigarette. And I'm just like, oh, my God, look how cool he looks. And I'm like, what am I doing? Cool I'm in my mid 30s. How am I still impressionable about this? Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, <laughs> I think that, those are those questions. How? Media can impact you in all these ways. And it's, it's you know, we would go through all these different theories. It's the syringe method where it just injects you or aren't you bringing something to it, right? Mm-hmm. Aren't you interacting in some ways yeah. uh, with, with, with media? And then the great question is, again, that I bring up is how does the medium change it, right? What is the difference? Like we would talk about 9-11, you know, and I would ask my students because, you know, they're great things like, 
when 9-11 happened, uh, we had digital media at the time. We could watch it on TV. What if 9-11 had happened at a different point when television wasn't that big? What if it happened in newspapers? Yeah. The impact been the same. It's the same event, <laughs> right? Yeah. But would it have the same impact if it's if the medium is different? And in many cases, take it back to Birth of a Nation, it started off as books. And those mm-hmm. books were popular. Then it became theater. And that was popular. But it was n- nowhere as popular as when it was on the screen, right? Yeah. The ability for films to travel, the simple fact that it's mass mm-hmm. media, they can travel so well. And simply people watching this for the first time and just being, like I always tell my students, imagine, I know like they laugh when I talk about how people reacted, like people were fainting in the theaters or yeah. the guy, like I have it in Ringshot, that's from an actual uh, article from a newspaper in Florida where a man pulls out a gun to shoot at one of the characters in blackface, mm-hmm. shoots at the screen, right? And my students are like, what is going on? And I said, imagine for them, this medium is so new. Yeah. Right. So imagine like us walking onto the holodeck mm-hmm. or into the matrix or something. Yeah. This is what it was like for them. They like this giant screen of these characters was just overwhelming to their senses, even though we've gotten just used to it now and how that impacted them in so many ways. Yeah. Well, and not only that, like with Birth of a Nation, especially because, you know, it being, like you said, a film, I have to like the, the the cultural impact and the way that people viewed this thing. It, it's not only is it, it movies have the ability to, you know, they can be viewed much more quickly than you can read a book, but also like for all the people who probably couldn't approach books, maybe they couldn't read or maybe they couldn't understand the concepts. You put something in front of someone and yeah. it's, you're, con- you're kind of forcing them to see the images. You're showing them the images you want them to see. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I would imagine like the power of that, especially like, you know, you make it fantastical and ring shout, of course, but like being able to like, there's real, there's real power in being able to show yeah. someone something as opposed to just telling them and then letting them mm. think about it. Right. And it's, I mean, and, I mean, it worked so well that uh, Al Simmons and these men who saw it in uh, in Georgia went out and formed a second clan mm-hmm. based on the film, yeah. <laughs> right? They even used the costumes and some of the rituals from Birth of a Nation to form this second clan, right? So it showed you how this thing on the screen leaped into the real world. And the second clan, as I said before, was just massive, anywhere from yeah. two to four million members, right? It mm-hmm. runs people for... Uh, for co- it runs people for political office. <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it like is very influential in things like prohibition and all. I mean, in ways that the first clan never never could be. The first clan is a small grouping of maybe a few tens of thousands who are in the former Confederate states. But mm-hmm. what this film was able to do, in a sense, I mean, it, it it was like almost like when writing Ring Shout, all of these things were just sitting there. I was like, yes, movie magic, spell <laughs> <laughs> binding. These right. Things we use for films. They were just kind of sitting there waiting for me to pick up and put mm-hmm. it in there. Like, I almost feel like it's, I'm cheating. It's too, it's too easy. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask you, cause I know in addition to, you know, teaching a class where you, you show bits and pieces of birth of a nation and you discuss it and you discuss it from, you know, like, like you said earlier, a showing slavery and cinema type of thing. But I know you've also written about like people like HP Lovecraft, who yeah. also wildly problematic, but also wildly influential yeah. So having a commentary is obviously important and bringing to light the things that these people did that were horribly wrong is important. But how do you like, what are your thoughts on approaching content like that? Because like, especially like you said, Birth of a Nation inspired so many different films and, you know, Gone with the Wind and so many different things. And H.P. Lovecraft is still an inspiration of God knows how many pieces of especially in, in your field, you know, science fiction and fantasy what are your thoughts on like approaching that and how to look at that content? I know that's a really open-ended question. Yeah, well, it's complicated and it's different for everyone, right? Yeah. Um, like with H.P. Lovecraft, for instance, you don't ever have to, you may have never read Lovecraft, but you, if you watch Buffy, yeah. you were influenced by Lovecraft. If you mm-hmm. read Marvel comics with Galactus and giant beat devouring world, you're, you've been, you're somehow impacted by Lovecraft by several degrees. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, what I always tell folks is this, um, nobody ever has to read Lovecraft if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's actually, I think it's always up to people and people get upset. It's like, you're trying to censor it. I said, I, I haven't asked to take any books from anywhere. Yeah. I'm just up to people to decide. If some, I know some people will read it 
because they want to know what's in there. They want to they want to study it. They want to be they want to understand it. And some other folks will say, I don't want to subject myself to that. And both of those are fine. <laughs> it's, I can't, like I said, I like remember so I was on a panel and someone was like, so you're telling people not to read Lovecraft? I said, I haven't said whether to read them or not. I'm yeah. just saying I can't force anyone to read them. Unless like they're in my class. Or <laughs> I can't, then I have a captive audience and I'm not teaching Lovecraft. But, you know, I, I think that it's just, it becomes an individual thing. It's up to how everybody wants to approach that, realizing that, yeah, you're, the stuff is going to be problematic and some people will be more problematic than mm-hmm. others, right? And it is really up to each individual person on how they're going to approach that. But I, I don't think we can hide it. I don't think we can gloss over it. It, it just is what it is. Yeah. I think dealing with it straightforward is probably best. Well, and I think creators who have the enormous influence, like the enormity of H.P. Lovecraft is you can't really ignore his impact on society like you said like Buffy you know even something is like if you watch Fantasia as a kid just because like your parent put it on yeah there's bits and pieces of that that are based off of Lovecraft like I do think thinking of like there's I feel like there's just some people who have created so much content in in their you know in our history that like I agree like I don't I don't read Lovecraft stuff personally but like you know that there's not that good to sure if I don't <laughs> what's that like reading a lot of it it's yeah it's not the best writing <laughs> no exactly yeah but like but, because but, it's like this old writing like I have a friend he calls it like his he calls he says Lovecraft's overwriting ass it's like, <laughs> like oh my god like get to the point man get to the point yeah <laughs> yeah I mean you know it is what it is yeah mm-hmm. yeah but I, I, I think it's important to at least like you mentioned them and like how they influence. I feel like, you know, you want to talk about how they influence people nowadays, but also like not like being afraid of being like HP Lovecraft was overtly racist and anti-Semitic and you know, all these different things. Yeah, like, and the only way to actually understand his work is to actually understand those tropes. If you don't understand uh, those ideas that he has personally, you, you really don't understand his work and his whole ideas of these fears of these xenophobic fears that, there are always these uh, forces lurking on the outside to destroy him. It's literally, it's wrapped up in his own fears of uh, that New England and other places were becoming less white and that or outside of that space. He, he would go to New York and literally have panic attacks because mm-hmm. he saw people of different races. So he like, I think he talks about at one point, he wants to like literally commit some kind of like genocide on uh, the Asian populations of Chinatown. You know? So it's, you know, if you, if, it's like if, if you understand that, then suddenly so much of his writing begins to fall into place. You're like, yeah. oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. This is what's going on here. It's not just that you're thinking up these things with tentacles. You really are afraid of uh, the outside world. Exactly. So, I mean, I think some of the best stuff that I've seen are creators who take that stuff because everyone likes tentacles. Uh, and they flip it and reverse it, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. great, like what Matt Ruff did with Lovecraft Country and then what yeah. HBO, I mean, the writers, Misha Green and Jordan, they just took it beyond mm-hmm. even Matt Ruff. And I think I think those are great ways uh, that you can still like the tentacles and all those things. Yeah. You give it your own interpretation. And, you know, I think that's great. I love every, uh, everyone that loves tentacles. That's fantastic. I love that so much. I want to take a quick break to talk about today's two sponsors. Uh, the first one is our friends at Headspace. You know, life can be stressful even under normal circumstances. And in 2020, it's not a secret. Every commercial advertisement you've heard talks about how it's an unprecedented year and these trying times and everything. But, you know, those are the, people keep saying that because it's all really true. And you need to find a way to relieve that stress uh, that go beyond quick fixes. And that's where Headspace comes in. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the one is one of the only meditation apps advancing the fields of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, you know, Headspace really can help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditation for you, which I've used quite frequently because I get kind of mini panic attacks a lot. And uh, their SOS meditation is really taught me how to calm myself down and kind of 
be aware of myself. Um, if you need some help falling asleep, which is also me, Headspace has wind down sessions uh, that their members, as well as me, swear by. Uh, if you are a parent, Headspace has morning meditations you can do with your kids, which is really a nice, unique way to kind of bond and get yourself all in that that right um, you know mental capacity to begin your day. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Uh, I've had a lot of stresses in my life lately, um, family things and work and personal stuff, and having Headspace has really helped me keep myself centered and again like be aware of myself and um, better understand how to approach issues uh, internally. So Headspace is backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Headspace makes it easy for you to build life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule anytime, anywhere. You you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash pbn for a free one-month trial. That's headspace.com slash pbn for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now, uh, so go to headspace.com slash pbn today. Today's episode is also sponsored by our friends at Man Crates. Uh, the guys in your life aren't boring, so you don't want to give them boring gifts. Give them the gift of Man Crates. Uh, show them that you really care with hundreds of totally unique gift options available at mancrates.com. Okay, we all know that... The holiday season is going to be a little bit different this year. Uh, our family, we're not going to really see anybody. We're going to do everything over Zoom. Uh, we're going to, you know, socially distancing and keep everybody safe. I come from a big family, and the last thing we want to do is, uh, you know, cause any type of a spreader event. And so one of the things I've been able to do is I've ordered up the men in my life, my dad, my brother, some of my cousins, uh, my brothers-in-law. Uh, I've ordered them man crates, and I can't wait for them to see them because this is truly a show-stopping gift when it arrives at your doorstep. It is literally a crate, and you have to pry it open with the crowbar that they provide you. And it's so much fun, but not only is like the process of opening up a man crate amazing, the things that come in the man crates are genuinely awesome gifts. Uh, there's a whiskey appreciation crate, which I have gotten before. It comes with a handmade whiskey decanter and tumblers, ice molds, uh, slate coasters and snacks. Uh, there's a grill master crate, which I've actually got in the past from one of my brother-in-laws. It comes with a brass knuckle meat tenderizer, uh, a cast iron smoker box, steak thermometers, and more. There are literally hundreds of different ones in here. There's drink options, there's food options, there's jerky man crates. It's not only, like I said, it's just an unforgettable experience. It's something that really is a cool thing to give people that they're going to remember, whether it's on Christmas morning or you're celebrating Hanukkah or Kwanzaa, or you just want to get a uh, you know, winter solstice gift for one of your friends. No matter what man in your life you're buying a gift for, Man Crates has something that they're going to love. Check out the endless selection of personalized gifts the guys in your life will love and their best discounts available by going to mancrates.com slash pbn. That's mancrates.com slash pbn mangrates.com slash pbn. Um, so you talked about how aspects of ring shout were, you know, are, are based are rooted in history. Can you explain for people? Cause I actually didn't know this until I read the book. Can you actually explain what a ring shout is and yeah. like where the, where the title comes from? Yeah. Ring shout was a type of, um, Ritual, the name itself comes from rituals uh, from the southern parts of the United States that these traditions that uh, date back uh, to the antebellum era and to enslaved peoples in various places. Um, in this case, I'm often talking about the ring shouts that really originate in the, in the Carolinas regions with uh, quote unquote Gullah peoples mm-hmm. of African descent who managed to create and hold on to and adapt their own distinct forms of culture. And the ring shout itself were these, often they were forms of prayer and worship, but they could also be used for other things as well. But often they were, and basically what would happen is people would gather and it became a way to, um, they would sing and move in these, and and use these movements often in a circle. And so that's where we have the ring shout. They would move in this counterclockwise circle. They would 
use very little instruments, uh, basically their voices, using parts of percussion of their body or using a stick or sometimes a stick man or clapping. And as they would sing and uh, clap along, people would move in this ring uh, as they, in a sense, shouted, right? As people shouted uh, out the songs or what have you. And in fact, the ring shout itself, uh, many people who've studied it have pointed out, it's less the song. So that's what most people know and it's the movement, right? Mm -hmm. Because in the movement in this ring, it's type of, think of it as a type of aesthetic dance. Like I yeah. guess the comparisons of people think of like whirling dervishes or something mm -hmm. like how one can go into like these trances during dance. Uh, people would move, but they wouldn't cross their feet because to cross your feet was to be dancing, right? And so yeah. doing something much more spiritual in your movements. And if you ever heard a ring shout or, and some people have, they may not realize this song they've heard comes from a ring shout. Mm. Like I've heard several, um, uh, like like in that uh, HBO show, True Detective, for instance, they had, I heard a ring shout, like on one, I was like, oh, that's a ring shout. They yeah. had a background once. And uh, it's sometimes used for various things that most people may not know this is where it comes from. Um, but uh, I thought, it, you know, what's interesting about that dance is that while it's from this parts of the Southern United States, you can find similar versions of it throughout the Atlantic world uh, where people of African descent uh, were bought as enslaved people. And so it carries a bit of these uh, African rhythms and African cos cosmological ideologies, but then it's also been adapted to this new, these new places and new spaces. And so it's something new, which was bought out of something old in some way. And so, yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of the, like hearing them in random places. And, and so I think I saw it, you said in an interview, like you actually had lyrics you had to remove and then kind of become a songwriter yourself in this, <laughs> because there are like, I, there's, there's songs in, in ring shout. Like, is that, so how, how did that come about? Like, yeah. So, um, so for instance, I had a, I had some Beyonce lyrics Yeah, I had other things in there. And my thing was to make this really lyrical. So I was like, I was pulling on old blues songs and I was, you know, there was like some modern hip hop songs. It was supposed to be, I mean, for one, I was telling people, I never expected this book to like blow up. It was supposed to have all of these little inside <laughs> little things that if somebody was from the South, right? Cause so much of it is this Southern uh, Gothic mm -hmm. fantasy that it's supposed to have all these Southern songs, right? So it was really like, I had UGK in there. I had people that most folks may not even know because I grew up in Houston, like, yeah. you know, really small Houston acts, like a guy named Lil Kiki that no one knows. Right? Yeah. People from Houston and they'd go, oh, and they champion it. And I put all that in there. And my editor tour at the time, Diana Fo, she was like, I love this story. I like all this. Do you understand copyrights? <laughs> And I was, I understood copyrights, but I was like, but I thought like, if you just, you know, I'm doing like hip hop. I was like, I thought if you just sampled like a little yeah. bit, she's like, no, none of it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you do, you can get permission, but that's, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a road. She said, and getting permission from Beyonce might be a bit different. Yeah, good luck with that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's also. Um... I had to become a songwriter. I had to take it all out and then fit it and refit it. Yeah. There's also stuff I've heard um, because I, I listen to a bunch of audiobooks and like there will be music, like real music in the in books I listen to sometimes. But there's some weird thing with audiobooks, like even if you do have a lyric, you can't use like the actual melody too. so you'll hear the narrator kind of like would say the lines of an obvious like song or even like like a rap lyric or like anything. And I, I actually asked a narrator one time, I was like, what is this like choppy syntax you're using? And she's like, I literally can't sing it because of copyright laws. It's like, yeah, so I'm serious about that stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so I think the only way is like if it there's a point at which it expires. So like I know someone who writes uh, and when they use music, they only use music from the 19th century because no copyright, it's expired. Yeah. So I, I was able to do that, for instance, with some of the ring shouts. I made certain because the ring shout tradition is probably, I would say the group that probably is most popular. It's a group called the McIntosh County Singers and they, they really hold on to the ring shout and they mm -hmm. recreated it. So I had to make sure I didn't use their lyrics and I used the older established, more folkloric mm -hmm. ring shouts. Like I can find them in the, I can find versions of them by the Fisk Jubilee singers from the 19th yeah. century. So I had to make certain that I used those. And when I didn't, I, I had to make up stuff. Mm -hmm. so I became a minor songwriter. I love it. Uh, I want to ask kind of about the medium of novellas because 
it's pretty unique. Like it's it's not quite a short story. It's shorter than a novel. Like, and this is kind of a space that that you've written a fair amount in. Like, what is it about that that medium that that length that attracts you to it and like does it feel challenging because there it's like it's like 40,000 words isn't that usually kind of the yeah about 40,000 is where it's like the, the sweet spot well that's that's the limit yeah uh, it's actually the long version so I'll be quite like I, I'll be quite honest I'd like to say it was something deep it's just that uh I too am an overwriter <laughs> <laughs> and when I first started writing short stories I had no idea how long a short story was supposed to be I was just yeah. I'm gonna write and mm-hmm. I would like finish my, uh, I'd say, I am done at 20,000 words. My short story is finished, mm-hmm. right? And of course, it's absurd. It's not a short story. You could sell that nowhere, but yeah. I knew nothing <laughs> about that, right? And so I actually had to later go on. I, I mean, I grew up on Robert, reading Robert Jordan and things like this. So mm-hmm. you know, overwriting is uh, right. long tomes of what I grew up on. And so I had to learn and go back and teach myself how to write short stories and then and even then like to this day like sometimes i'll be aiming for a short story to six thousand i'm like huh, nine thousand and i haven't even hit the climax yet so <laughs> what's gonna happen and so all this to say i like uh my first novella uh was the black god's drums and i started that out wanting that to be a, a short story mm-hmm. <laughs> hitting like twelve thousand or so and yeah once you've written a story like that, for most markets, you have nowhere, you have nothing to do with it. Yeah. Uh, most markets are really, certainly most aren't even hit, hitting 7,000. Mm-hmm. Nobody's giving you 12,000 words. And so I would write these stories and then I would just, they would just end up in the purgatory of my uh, Dropbox or flash drive back then. Right. And so all this to say what was great was that Tor came along and said, hey, it turns out people like reading novellas, right? Mm-hmm. Novellas were supposed to be like, you could never sell them on novelettes. They were, yeah. they, they were, they were just for you to keep. Yeah. Uh, but they were like, no, it turns out people like reading the shorter, uh, I don't know what it is, but it's our digital age or yeah. whatever it is, but they like reading these quicker books. And mm-hmm. it just so happens that, uh, oh, like, guess what? I, I tend to write <laughs> yeah. minutes five. And so, like, I remember with Black Ops Drums, it was at novelette form. And my editor at the time was like, do you think you could bump it up in novella? I was like, yeah, that's not a problem. I actually was working hard <laughs> to keep it down. So you need 5,000 more words? Got it. Mm-hmm. No problem. Um, so so I nothing actually, deep there. Just uh, yeah. I happen to find a space where it's easier for me to write. Yeah, uh, that's okay. That That's... That's a good thing I want to kind of touch on. Though I was, I heard um, recently, uh, Marlon James and Neil Gaiman did this like this talk thing. It was literally like a hey, pay a couple of bucks and you can hear these two popular writers hey, talk about that's writing. That's worth it. And it was like, I was like, man, good for them. It's just like two friends catching up and a whole <laughs> bunch of us wanted to watch. Um, but they were talking about writing short stories because they were focusing on um, Neil Gaiman had this new mm. this the Neil Gaiman reader I think it's called and it's basically I love his short stories by the way it's because they because they can just they're all over the place yeah like there's a Doctor Who story in here and <laughs> this one has pterodactyls in it yeah. he actually oh all over. his mind just ranges yeah uh-huh. oh and he actually ha- he actually has one in there I think about HP like an HP Lovecraft inspired thing um, but. They were talking about short stories because Marlon asked him, he's like, do you, you know, obviously you're Neil Gaiman, you've written countless novels. He's like, but do you consider yourself a short story writer? And Neil Gaiman was like, no, they're so hard to write. And then Marlon held up his like 700 pages worth of short stories that he was now on sale. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he was talking about like the wild difference in how someone once told Neil write a short story as if you're writing like the 38th through 40th chapters of a novel and just trust that everyone reading it is going to kind of understand that's where you're at because you don't have time to do the the first 30, you know, six chapters. Do you feel in writing a novella or a novelette, like, do you feel like you have to make things happen more quickly or like, is there just a, a process for you that might feel different than if you were going to write like 320 pages or something along those lines? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it, and it's in from, I can take it from short story to novelette to novella to novel. Right. Mm-hmm. And I always say like, I always say for short story, 
Uh, you have like one or two main characters, you know, a little bit about their life, just a bit. Yeah. Uh, you get into novelette, you might get one, two or three characters, mm-hmm. and you know, a little bit more about their life, maybe where they live mm-hmm. <laughs> and things like that, as well as other things, right? And you might be able to jump from, in novelettes, you might be able to jump from scene to scene, jump to a few scenes. Yeah. Novella, oh, you, now you can get like a little bit more, you can, you can introduce a, whole cast of characters but each of them just has to you have to give them a little well-roundedness but you can't go too far into it so you're just leaving it up to the to their imagination and you can build up the world a bit more and you can have multiple scenes Mm -hmm. novel people want to know about this character they want to know who their parents are they want to know their favorite food (laughs) (laughs) they want to know the little quirks that they do Mm -hmm. and they want to see them you know and you need to cast up characters they need to interact and the world needs to be much more fleshed out they need to have this like and so yeah i think you you have to know that going in because if you if you go in with a novel mindset to write a short story, there's no way you'll you'll spend all your time just world building. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and it comes down to the fact for me, a lot of it is world building. It's like I can only do so much if it's an if it's an if it's a short story and so more and so mm-hmm. forth. So sometimes I have to know the type of story I'm going to tell. Like the, like I have to like give it parameters and be like. Sometimes it's a story that's like, actually, the most I can give you is a short story. Cause I don't I want to tell this nice story, but I don't feel like building out that whole world that you would expect in a novel. I don't feel like right. going all in depth. So it's just going to have to be a short story. And then sometimes you write it and you try to cut it down. This happened to my story, first story I published in tour, the novelette, A Dead Shit in Cairo, mm-hmm. where I wrote that. It was a novelette and I tried to, I was like, maybe I can pare it down, cut it and cut it and cut it. And yeah. Under at least ten thousand, because then maybe you can go to like, you know, some place that takes at least that. Yeah. And uh, every time I would pair it and cut it, it just didn't feel right. It felt choppy. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't flow. And so I had to leave it as it is. And luckily, tour came along and it's like, hey, let me see that thing. Printed it. Well, and like from a world building standpoint, you know, with with Ring Shout, I mean, there's obviously endless fantastical aspects about it. But I have to imagine you were able to save thinking about saving word count is hilarious but it's true like i have to imagine the fact that it's it is set in a real world setting like you didn't have to spend a lot of time explaining like the physics of a lot of stuff because i mean again like there's monsters the magic systems and the oh yeah secondary yeah. world building yeah the reason that those those take time there's a reason those books are larger like if i have to explain to you uh, the hills of Dundendor <laughs> or something. <laughs> I have to give you a map and show you like, you know, where the river is from the Mirkwood to what have you. No, yeah. that's going to, yeah, that just, those naturally take longer because you're literally giving people a whole world, sometimes languages and mm-hmm. only people. But yeah, it's when people are more familiar and it's here, Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot easier so is first person it's like I'm, and i'm saying all this because sometimes it's managing word count there's a way that speaking from first person perspective allows you to shave off words that yeah you have if it was uh third person just little tricks if people want yeah to yeah okay can, because the first because no one we don't always think in full sentences so mm-hmm. you can write it in little you can write half sentences you get away with these things that yeah. you can't get away with all the time if it's third person Okay, that's okay. This is kind of funny. I'm thinking about this. Like, is word count always in the back of your head then? Because, I'm, like, a novel, like, you could write a 280, you know, page novel. You could write a 700 page novel. Is if you're a big enough name, you know, people are, if you're, king, yeah. Yeah. So, but is it like, they don't, they don't bother to edit you. They just let you write these off. Let you have it. Yeah. You know what a lot of readers say? Perhaps it shouldn't be that long. Yeah. You know, they're so big. Nobody's telling them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's so so is word count like while you're writing knowing that you're gonna write a novella or novelette like yeah does it stick in your mind the whole time it does yeah it, it has to i mean i was just thinking like i wrote a i had to write a short story uh recently for an anthology that i had agreed to sign it sign on for and i thought that i had five thousand words right and i was like okay i got the story that means i've got to cut down the plot a bit from when i have my larger one but i can do it and I'm writing and I'm writing and I'm almost there. And something about it, Magna, it's like, you know, the last time I saw this, was it 5,000 or 6,000? Could I have an extra thousand? That's excellent, right? Then I can do more. So I went ahead in the emails and I was looking, I couldn't find it. So I wrote them like just a week before it's due. And I was like, hey, could you give me the word count again? 
They're like, yeah, 3,500 more. Oh, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> 3,500 words. Oh. I was like, and so you met. So basically I had to go back and literally I just threw out what I had because there was no yeah. way I could No, In other words, there was a lot of showing that I had to make telling. There was yeah. just so many things that had to change. I changed it to first person because I knew like this first thing I got to do. <laughs> to get yeah. Order. And I managed to end exactly on 3,500 words, but it was constantly shaving here, shaving here, shaving mm-hmm. there. And so, yeah, all this to say, word count is always important. Like, I don't want to tell people, like, don't freak out over it. Um, because at the end of the day, you just need to get the story you need told. But yeah. there has to be a way that you pace yourself as you're writing so that you know, I am sitting at the right 3,500 word. Yeah. Those so two different worlds entirely. Yeah. Uh, and it happened with Ring Shout, where my first, ring, my first uh, cut of Ring Shout was like 44,000. And they were like, this is great. However, awards, like this is fine for us for development. You should know this, the awards categories, Mm -hmm. uh, they sometimes cut off at 40 for novellas. We don't, but they do. (laughs) And your debut novel hasn't come out. So if this goes over, they're going to consider this your debut novel Novel. and not the other one. So I then had to cut 4,000 words. And that was like a multi-month process. Yeah. Me taking 4,000 words out of ring shot. Now the readers don't miss it. They have no idea what's gone. Right. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. yeah, Even though it wasn't there. Size. I mean, just little bits of things like dialogue tags Mm -hmm. and just all these different. I mean, but it it, had to go and it was always like, so where am I now? It was like, you got it because I need to. I wanted to add something or change something. They're like, you are three thousand nine hundred eighty-nine words. You have eleven words, <laughs> and you want to tell this entire thing. So I would have to go in and see where can I cut because do I want this that badly? And yeah. that went on for several months before I was finally like, I'm done. And I was like, where did I end? They're like you're three thousand nine hundred ninety-eight. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh my god. But yeah, all this to say, yeah, you deal with that. Now when I did the novel. I had to deal with it less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was good. They still, I was told to cut. And so I did end up losing like, I think I cut down like, I want to say about three, four, five thousand, three or four thousand words. But it was still, they, they, they didn't mind too much if it's a bit bigger. But yeah, they, there's a whole thing is shelf space, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you, Neil Gaiman gets to read yeah, book. Yeah, take up all that shelf space. <laughs> You know, when Abercrombie and all these other folks are, you know, are writing there, you, your little book can't just come yeah. in there all, you mm-hmm. know, let me, let me mosey my 800 selves <laughs> in between here. No, in some places they do. They allow you to have the 800 words. So, but not yeah. for first time writer, first novels. Yeah, you, you yeah, got to you, work your way up to that. Yeah, you can't pull out like Samantha Shannon's like Priory of an Orange Tree that's like 880 wo- like pages. Right. You can't be like, that can't be your first one and you're just like, I'm done. Let's go. Here we go. Put we that up. Now, we always, like I have my friend, we always say we want to get to peak white fantasy writer tone where mm-hmm. you can be like Stephen Erickson's Malazan books. And yeah. like, here's my 900 page book. Yeah. I have 12 more of those. Hold on. <laughs> right? Like, you have to work your way up to get to that level. Oh, that's amazing. Um, all right, one more question for you. What do you hope uh, readers take away from Ring Shout? Hmm. Um, I mean, <laughs> I suppose one of the things I was setting out to do was to create a fantasy story in a different setting mm-hmm. with the idea that you can create uh, fantasy. That's my first love, actually. People, as much as I write steampunk and all this, why there's always magic and things that yeah. And what I cut my teeth on is what I, I grew up reading all the Dragonlance books and mm-hmm. everything else in the world, right? Red fantasy. And so you can create a fantasy world and it doesn't have to be based on the ones that we grew up in. It doesn't have to be based on some medieval European hamlet where a dwarf, a ranger, and whoever meet in a bar. <laughs> in a tavern <laughs> bar. You know, it, and even it doesn't even have to always be, though it's interesting, it doesn't always have to be set in some ancient African society if you're Black or you want it to be that. You can yeah. set it in some modern place. You can write it here and you can, you can, you can find monsters. And like Maurice has a sword. There are monsters. <laughs> yeah. You can tell those different stories. And I think there are all of these, 
there are all of these stories in our real world that are kind of waiting to be told uh, mm -hmm. through that lens. And I think that, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to draw on them because we think, oh, well, you can't do that. You can't have a sword wielding heroine in the middle of 1920s Georgia. That's bizarre, fighting monsters. And I'm like, yeah, you can. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out you, you can do that quite fine. Uh, <laughs> and so I just want people to feel that, I, I mean, this story was really experimental for me. Like I said, I was not expecting it to, uh, to garner this much interest, but I mm -hmm. hope that one thing people take from that is that, yeah, let, let your freak flag fly. Let be as experimental mm -hmm. as you want to be. If you're trying to do something, you think, I don't think I can do that. Maybe you can't. Maybe yeah. the readers will come along, right? Yeah. So have faith in that. That is perfect. The book is fantastic. Fen, thank you so much for joining me today. Good conversation. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com see you soon